Father, meet us here, creator of all. Bring meaning to our lives as we seek you in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, how often can you say we're starting our sermon at the very beginning of the beginning? In fact, the words are that, in the beginning. We're starting a 31-week walk through the narratives of the Old Testament. And we're in it to seek context to our lives, to seek underpinnings of the big questions in life. I remember um, one of those stories in Reader's Digest years ago of a little girl that came home from school, and she said, Mom, where did I come from? And the mother thought, well, I hope to have a few years to prepare for this. But as best she could, she carefully gave the, the birds and the bees with a little bit of embarrassment and a lot of clearing her throat in the midst of it. And then she looked at her and said, do you understand? And the girl said, I suppose so. I asked Sarah where she came from, and she said, Minnesota. I just want to know where I came from. <laughs> where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? The whole human experience is somehow connected to one or more of those questions. And each of those questions are intricately connected to one another. I don't really understand where I am if I don't have a clear sense of where I have come from. And that is certainly true in Scripture. So why? Why are we taking time to do it? Because we need to remember where we came from. Some of you here may have never actually read through the Old Testament stories. We didn't have the benefit of seeing many of the stories we're going to look at in flannel graph, <laughs> two-dimensional cartoon figures stuck on flannel that I remember and by which I was first introduced to many of these characters. So you may be here, and what we're about to work through is really the first time you've seen it. And I want to suggest that there's a bonus to that because you get the real grown-up version first. One of the challenges of growing up in the church, one of the blessings is knowing these stories from a youth, but one of the challenges is allowing those stories to mature with us into adulthood. So you get to see it the way it really happened. Because life in the Bible, just like life as we experience it, is a messy thing. It's a messy and glorious thing. Frankly, no seeker of Christ can have a complete pilgrimage without walking through this narrative. And so we're going to do it together. And today we're coming to one of the most controversial passages, one of the most hotly debated, often misappropriated, and certainly misunderstood passages in the whole of the Bible. And I'm very excited to share it with you because this is a great opportunity for us to use the tools that we acquired together when we looked into how to appropriately study the Bible. Paul challenges Timothy that we need to be diligent to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. God has given us this incredible gift known as His Word. We are charged with handling it correctly and how easily we can abuse it, how easily we can miss out on it. The proper term is exegesis, taking words that were written in ancient times and bringing them to us today in a way that the message that was intended by God comes through. Remember, our goal isn't to decide what the Bible says to us. What does it mean to you? What does it mean to me? The question is, what does it mean? What did God intend to say? If we get that right, then 
we do what we call hermeneutics. That's that second big word. And that's apply that truth into modern time. So when we come to the book of Genesis chapter 1, imagine the difficulty that we have now. If there was ever a passage where we have weighted down, dumped arguments, centuries of debate between science and faith, how do we handle this piece properly? How do we go back and say, what was God saying through Moses to the children of Israel when it was first given to them? And if we can't do that, then we're going to miss out on glorious things in this passage. So I'm going to encourage you to do your very best to not come into this thinking, well, I can't wait to hear Pastor Tom address this question. Or, I wonder if he holds this particular view about the six days. And if he doesn't, man, how am I going to feel about that? I want to clear the playing field so that we can enter into this passage like innocent kids just caught up with the wonder of God's creation and of our Creator. We want to clear the field so we can play, not fight. So I want to talk about three things that I think might distract our ability to get back to this original meaning in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is the issue of motivation. What is it that drives you when you come to Genesis, those of you that have spent any time reading it or struggling with what it means, when we come at it fresh like this, it's an opportunity to ask yourself, what is motivating your current point of view? Where is that really coming from? You know, in all of us, we have the best of intentions that motivate us, but we are always driven by hidden intentions as well, brokenness in us. We never operate out of exclusively the best of intentions. Some of us um, can be driven by fear, by spiritual fear. We have been fed this idea that if we don't have a specific interpretation of these very first words in the Bible as historical, literal, doesn't that mean the whole Bible falls apart? That whole debate is, frankly, only a, a couple centuries old. Even those great theologians that have formed and shaped our faith as Orthodox Christians were not part of that debate, did not get lost in having to interpret Genesis 1 in a specific way and saying, if you don't do that, you can't believe in anything. That's really a fallacious argument. What's driving you to that? And can you suspend the fear and trust that God's Word might have something else? Fear is never the right way to interpret God's Word. For others of us, it's unbelief. Drives others to dismiss it completely. And they say it's reason, because I look at it, and it just doesn't make sense from what we know. It's logical, but at the root of that for some of us, frankly, is just a penchant to not believe. That will drive you not just to dismiss the miraculous in the creation account, but that will drive you, as Thomas Jefferson did, to dismiss all supernatural at any account. That Bible of Thomas Jefferson that we've referred to multiple times this year, where he took out everything of the miraculous ends with Jesus being buried in the tomb. No resurrection, no victory over death, no supernatural. You see, it can't be unbelief that drives you to interpret this in a way that to you makes more sense, is more reasonable. Can't be that. Has to be an issue of faith. The simple fact is, if, if I believe that God is at the root of it all, which minimally comes from Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created if I believe that, then that's the biggest leap. How? That's, that's just a question of wonder, right? 
You see, the ancients, the writers that God moved and through which he gave his holy inspired word, their focus was not to compete with a scientific textbook. And when they talked about origins, their goal wasn't to explain how, but rather who and why. That's the first uh, uh, clearing of the deck. The second is a, a question of clarification, distinguishing between doctrine and opinion. We have a way as Christians of using the term belief far too broadly, in my opinion. When I say I believe something in the Bible, it ought to be something the Bible explicitly teaches that Christians can say, yes, this is the historic faith that that is taught. That's what we mean by orthodoxy, and ought to be a pretty brief, convicted list of teachings. But our problem is we take all the secondary areas that the Bible is implicit about, it's not clear about, and if we have an opinion about it, we call it a belief. Then we say to other people, if you don't believe that, then you don't believe the whole Bible. You can't even be a Christian and believe that. I would love to see us say beliefs are reserved to those things that are really core to what it means to be a Christian. And everything else, that's interpretation, opinion. And the creation account is a classic place. Good, God-fearing, spiritual, mature believers see these things differently. A third thing I think is important to clear the air about is the existing controversy between science and creationism. D.A. Carson, who is one of our most profound evangelical theologians, makes two overarching observations. The first observation he makes is that there is more ambiguity in Scripture about creation than most Christians are willing to admit. But then he says there's far more ambiguity in the claims of science than most scientists are willing to admit. Science itself presents no threat to faith. Remember, God reveals himself not just through his word, he reveals himself through creation. That's called natural revelation. Psalm 19.1, all creation reveals the glory of God. Science itself, what can be established as true of nature, all points to God's glory. What the open-minded scientists called the irreducible complexity of the world that is numerically inconceivable to happen in chance. The conflict comes when we speculate and then call those speculations either scientific fact or doctrinal belief. Moses never conceived of that debate. One writer about this says, why do we expect the biblical authors to have access to modern scientific information? Do we really think that science is that important? Interesting question. Do we really think that science matters so much that God had to reveal it to Moses, David, and the prophets? What they say is true from a simple observational perspective. I refuse to elevate science into a canon of biblical interpretation. It may cause us to reconsider our traditional exegesis, but we should not let it force us to distort what the Scriptures say. I think that's a very healthy way to look at the Bible. We are modern people. We need to be able to embrace and look at the universe with all the tools that are there, and it's glorious to live in a day where we understand what the universe is. All creation does indeed reveal the glory of God. But that wasn't Moses' perspective. That wasn't the perspective of the early writers. And for us to impose that is to create a standard that God did not intend to hold. I've mentioned several things that I think might get in the way 
in order to say, for now, as we look at this, can we just set those aside so that we come at this clean and get a good exegesis of the text? What was the original message to the original people? Are you with me on that? All right. With that in mind, let's turn to the text. Genesis chapter 1. Open your Bible and go left. There's actually two different accounts of creation in Genesis. There's Genesis chapter 1 into the first three verses of chapter 2, and then there's Genesis chapter 2, which focuses more on location and the creation and purpose of the human race, which we're going to focus more on next week. But let's read it together. I'm, I'm going to read you follow along. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the great light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living and moving thing with which the waters teemed, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock creatures that move along the ground and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, 
over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. On the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested for all the work of creation that he had done. This is the Word of God. Let's look at this now and apply our process of studying, trying to get the real message. And we have to do that by looking at several things, if you remember. We need to look at the background or the context. We need to look at the style of literature. We need to look at the words themselves very carefully, how they're written, the original language and meaning as best as we can understand. We take all that into account to try to understand the original teaching. And so I want to take you through that process as as best as I am able. So let's start by looking at the context. I think it's so important because we have so separated out this passage that we miss the fact that this was the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, or what we refer to as the, the books of Moses. The, the Hebrew people refer to it in different ways. One of the ways is the law. They saw the whole of it as given to teach them how to live and how to follow and worship God. It isn't given to Israel specifically to be history. It's not to say it's not narrative. It's not to say that true history isn't in it. The history that's taught in Genesis is meant to be the background for how the children of Israel came out of the rest of the nations and were called out by God to be his own people and to live in a very particular way. That's the purpose of Genesis. When we set it against our modern knowledge base about, about science and creation and all those different things, we're missing the original value, which is where the primary message is. So we need to understand that it's part of the Torah. It's written to a people who are emerging from peoples all around them that are polytheistic. They are being called to something very different. For us, three of the four major world religions now being monotheistic, we can't conceive of what it meant to be a group of people who were going to be the first to believe in a one true God. And in particular, the people that are receiving the Pentateuch spent four centuries in captivity and inculcated by the religion and the philosophical and spiritual ideas of Egypt. So the teaching here is specifically designed to help them not just follow God, but to, but to leave behind the polytheistic ways of worship that they had brought with them. Indeed, as we go forward in our story, we will recognize that that was exactly the stuff to address 
because Israel struggles with leaving that behind for almost 1,600 years. This very thing that the Torah is designed to do, which is to pull them out, to help them understand who the one true God is, know how to be his children, live within that context, worship him, honor him, bless all other nations through him. All of that is being given to a group of people that take centuries upon centuries to get it down. What we will see as we follow this is that they keep running back to their many gods. Generation after generation, God pulls them back and a generational worship and then begin that slide back to the worship of many gods and idols. And finally, if there is a moment when we can say they finally get it, it's after the great period of exile at the end of the Old Testament narrative when they come back through Nehemiah to the promised land once again. And finally there, we, we can sense that they finally got it right about this one true God because that is very well preserved during the 400 silent years that occur up until the time when we pick up the New Testament and we see how the children of Israel worshiped in the time of Jesus. By then, they were strongly, radically, fundamentally monotheistic. But you could argue the whole Old Testament is a struggle for them to get that and to be that. So everything about the Torah is to give them the tools, the understanding they need to come out from among this polytheism and worship and uniquely be uh, those that belong to the one true God. That's the context. And it's important that we see that because that helps us then recognize what's being communicated from the very beginning. In the beginning, God, he's the one that created. Not many gods, the God. And I want you to get to know him. That's the beginning of the Torah. Let's look now at the style of literature, what we refer to as the genre. How you view Genesis chapter 1 in terms of its literary makeup goes a long way in how you interpret it. There have been for the last two centuries, especially in America, a very strong uh, tendency to say, well, the whole book of Genesis is history, and so we need to look at these first chapters through that lens as chronological history. Uh, that's an assumption that is brought to it, and therefore biases how it's interpreted. Is it history? I I'm going to argue it's not. Others today, in an attempt to try to look at it in a more balanced way, call it poetry. I found that, that idea attractive. But the problem is, uh, when you really look at the five forms of Hebrew poetry, Genesis 1 doesn't fit into any of them. It is clearly stylized. There is symbolism, there is structure and repetition that does not exist in the more historical narratives that move forward in the book of Genesis. So it is not classic history. It's not. It's not intended. It is a stylized form of writing, but it's wrong to refer to it as poetry. So what is Genesis 1? Okay. What I'd like you to do is think about yourself coming to it as one of those first readers. Remember the context. You're coming out of a group of cultures around you, all of which have a view of the cosmos, a view of the world that is polytheistic. And every one of those cultures have an allegory that answers some of the core questions that we posed at the beginning. 
Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? Each of them have an origin story. A cosmogony is an extended allegory that attempts to answer those core questions. Not in a scientific way, but in a way that categorizes creation so that it has some order and it makes sense. The standard form that they're used to is one God among many gods going to do great battle against a beast that represents chaos and wins over the beast that represents chaos and brings order to the cosmos. That is a common allegory prevalent in cultures around them. So, when you come to Genesis chapter 1 for the first time to read it, you would recognize exactly what Moses is giving. Moses is taking a very common form of literature. He is using a style of writing to express abstract truth, truth that is not scientifically verifiable. You know, we affirm that all men are created equal and endowed with certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We accept those as truth, but they're abstract truths. You can't put them in a, in a laboratory and prove them. What I would say is, is that he is using this common story style in order to deny and dismiss all other versions in his day. Sort of one cosmogony to rule them all. The competitor of Genesis chapter 1 is not a scientific, technical, or geological textbook. The competitors are the origin stories of every other culture around. And the purposes are theological and religious, not scientific and geological. Does that make sense to you? There are things organized here that make perfect sense if I come at them through that lens we begin to see that what is mostly being revealed here is less about God's creation and more about the Creator Himself. So we're going to focus on that just for a few minutes. When we come to this text and look at it that way, what are the things that Israel learned and we are to learn through this story about the one true Creator God for whom we are to live and who we are to worship? Okay, I'm going to list six quick things, and you can see them in the back, and then we'll come back to them next week. First thing we see, God simply is. In the beginning, God. The Bible nowhere makes any attempt to give us proof of God's existence. Nowhere. It's just an assumption. Scripture is a God-centered reality and universe. Somewhere around the 1600s, our focus shifted from a God-centered idea of evaluating the universe to a me-centered when Descartes introduced the axiom, I think, therefore I am, as the foundation for all human knowledge. What he was looking for was a common, indisputable starting point for all people, no matter what religion they held, to come to. Descartes' goal was to actually use that as a basis to move people from that acknowledgement into the Roman Catholic Church. He was actually a philosophical Catholic evangelist. But what he created in the fallout of it was this shift from being God-centered to being I-centered. Now, I judge everything. I stand as the authority for whatever makes sense to me. I judge history, I judge morality, I judge God and, and God's existence myself. I am the source of my final decision. See, the Bible doesn't walk in that lane. It just says God is. 
Second thing, that God made everything else. Next week, we'll look at this a little bit more when we look at the breakdown of the categories of creation in the six days. That God made everything else. Now, for the original lister, that's really critical because what is listed in the book of Genesis is everything that every culture around them worshiped. And the big point that Moses is making to the people of Israel is that none of them are worthy of your worship. They are created just like you by the single creator. God made everything else. Three, there is only one of him. (laughs) Very important. There's a personalization. It is God who said and did. And we understand this clearly, and it's summarized in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. He is one God. He's one, but yet there are hints of complexity. Even in Genesis 1, we see hints of what will later be revealed of a, of a one true God that exists in three persons, which we'll talk about as we go forward. Fourth, God is a talking God. He communicates to us. I don't know if God said, let there be, is metaphorical or literal. Probably works either way, but there is a point where God keeps talking to people that can hear him and understand him and reveals himself to them and gives them instructions as to how they live their lives. The God of the Bible is not an abstract, unmoved mover or a spirit of impossible definition, or some ground of all beings, or a mystical experience, the God of the Bible discloses himself in words that human beings understand. And that leads us to five. Everything God makes is good. In fact, very good. In spite how the story will progress into moral decay, into malice and pride and even destruction. We are assured at the very beginning that God is a good God and all that is sourced from Him is itself good. And we are called to live and celebrate life within that goodness. That is part of how we were created and what our Creator provided for us. And then finally, when finished, God rests right? He rests. Now, now we don't mean that God said, that took so much out of me. I'm just going to kick back for a while and put my feet up. This is an intentional resting. Next week when I come to this, you're going to see that this allegory of creation sets itself apart from all others, not only because of the God who created and is revealed through it, But that God created a cadence for life that he himself instituted. This is a purposeful resting. Just like any great artist who, when they're done, sits back and goes, I just want to enjoy this for a while. God enjoys what he makes. He rests, and he calls us to do that also. All right, so we've just whet your appetites. Maybe opened up a lot of questions. Don't be scared by that. That's okay. It's good to struggle so that you can grow. If we stay with this and work through it, we're going to find some deeper, more profound, more glorious, exciting truths that allow us to look at creation as something we can play in, not fight in. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. And uh, would you use uh, the shaking up of old ideas to ground us, not drive us away? 
Help us not to operate out of fear or doubt, but help us to step forward in faith and discover the God who reveals himself in his word as the creator of all, who makes all things good and calls us to live within that good grace. In Jesus' name, amen.